Long-time listeners of the show understand its ethos well. In the eye of the storm of negativity and this growing sense of impossibility, Chatter the Matter counters with inspiring and true stories of positivity and possibility. I think the world needs more stories of people who dream and do, who counter their circumstances and find a way to persevere. I don't pretend nor do I ignore the headwinds we battle every day. They're honest and they're relentless. But I also believe pessimism is big business in the attention economy and today's democracy. News stations scramble to one-up their doomsday posts, hanging out at hairpin turns to chase engagement and eyeballs at all costs. Social media, this around-the-clock covers, these slot machine-esque algorithms. We find ourselves herded by our own data into camps where we socialize with like-minded people, posting, reading, validating, and sharing like-minded content. And there our biases aren't just confirmed, they're petrified into absolutes. And our politicians are no better. They want a divide to conquer. And around us, the middle ground collapses, and you find yourself having to choose sides. Are you pro versus anti, left versus right, east versus west, red versus blue? Is this a pendulum that'll swing back? I hope so. You know, Tao had it right when he did the yin and yang symbols. Inside his circle, there's a white swirl with a black dot and a black swirl with a white dot. In the simplest form, there's always a little darkness and light and a little light and darkness. And when you put them together, you have balance and you have life. But today we seem out of balance, and one would argue more dark than light. And I think it's impacting our psychology and our behavior and our ability to dream and do. To answer if I'm right, I've invited Professor Steven Pinker to join me in Chatter That Matters. I would say the meaning of life is not only to take advantage of the sources of, of uh, pleasure and satisfaction, but to ensure that other people can as well by, by granting to others the same prerogatives and rights that we claim to ourselves. Stephen Pinker is the Johnson Family Professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. He comes from my hometown of Montreal. He's considered one of the most significant thinkers on the planet. Time Magazine named Professor Pinker to the 100 most influential people in the world five times. Stephen Pinker researches language, cognition, and social relations. He writes for publications like the New York Times, Time Magazine, the Atlantic hangs out with people like Bill Gates and is the author of 12 best-selling books. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Professor Pinker, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So in 2011, you published The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence is in Decline. And you showed that despite the ceaseless news about war and crime and terrorism, violence has declined over a long stretch of history. It becomes a New York Times bestseller. It earns rave reviews. Bill Gates writes this. If I could give each of you a graduation present, it would be this, the most inspiring book I've ever read. Why did it resonate with so many different people? Because I know we obviously had a lot of people that were criticizing what you're saying, but you, so many people rallied to your support saying, finally, somebody is, is putting math ahead of rhetoric. I was as surprised as anyone when I came across data showing declines in violence, declines in homicide, declines in war deaths and genocide deaths and violence against women, violence against children, uh, institutions like slavery capital punishment for uh, non-lethal crimes. Practice after practice, uh, violent act after violent act, when you plot the data over time, they show declines. Now, not linear declines as, uh, as uh, uh, some people misinterpret the data, or even monotonic declines, which is to say always going down, never 
backtracking or reversing. These are uh, often wiggly curves, but they show a, a downward trajectory. This comes as a, as a surprise because as long as violence doesn't go to zero, there'll always be enough incidents to fill the news. And if you get your picture of the world from the news, you'll think that violence is as common as ever or even getting worse if news coverage increases, such as when people carry around smartphones and can upload videos to the uh, to the web. And um, people, for one thing, have to just digest this counterintuitive finding. It, in particular, it goes against a feature of our own psychology, namely the availability bias that is Available images and narratives and uh, events tend to make us think that a particular category is is common. If we can think of examples, we think it must happen all the time. That combined with the nature of news feeds into our overestimation of how violent time we uh, we live in. But it also starts to change other things like your appreciation of modernity has uh, have all the changes that have taken place since the scientific revolution and the enlightenment made us better off or worse off. And that, that led to a subsequent book called Enlightenment Now. You know, you're talking about psychology. Do you think it's fair to say that the news, which is, you know, mass media, especially starving for eyeballs, it's, a, you know, there's a whole new model out there where people are getting their news, are spending more time sitting at that hairpin corner looking for sensationalism and looking to present things that, that create an itch and, and draw people in? It's possible, but it's always been a feature of journalism. The journalistic watchword, if it bleeds, it leads, uh, came way before the advent of social media or even the internet. Uh, and it's just in the nature of news, as long as you're reporting uh, events rather than trends, there'll be this built-in bias, together with the fact that we uh, are, are morbidly captivated by violence. I mean, that if, if we don't get enough of it from real life, we invented it in our fiction, in, in murder mysteries and mafia movies and in, in Shakespearean tragedies. So uh, our, our minds are naturally gravitate to violence for the obvious evolutionary reason that it's good to understand it because it might do you in. Combine that with the fact that news covers things that happen suddenly, and most things that happen suddenly are, are, are bad, like a, a terrorist attack, an invasion, a police shooting, things that uh, consist of positive events, such as an absence of war in parts of the world that used to be racked by it. Something not happening is not news. And if lots and lots of things don't happen, like lots and lots of parts of the world are not at war, again, you don't see that in a headline. So it's it's both built into the very nature of news, but it's also something of a conscious choice by editors in, in terms of grabbing an audience. And that was true even when papers were sold um, at street corners or by little boys shouting extra, extra. Let's talk a little bit about social media then, because my feeling is that we're getting herded into camps where we hang with like-minded people, we share like-minded content, we validate, and our confirmation biases become quite fortified. We have strength in numbers. Is that a fair statement? Because I certainly see democracy seem to be playing into that, where it's easier now to get elected by dividing versus trying to unite. That has happened. And it's not just social media. I think this is more dramatic in the United States than in Canada. But there are also cable news networks like Fox and MSNBC, AM talk radio stations, 24-7 a grievance about how uh, awful the, the, the liberals and the left are. The social media have contributed. But remember that in, in, on the internet, you're just a click away from sources with the opposite political bias. Whereas if you subscribe to 
a right-wing paper or a left-wing paper in the old days and you had it delivered to your doorstep, that was what was on your breakfast table. So you didn't have the option of suddenly switching. And in fact, studies of, of internet use show that the filter bubbles are probably exaggerated, but the news sources themselves have probably become more uh, polarized than they used to be. There's been the rise of media like cable news in the United States and um, uh, talk radio. There are fewer sources that everyone acknowledges are trustworthy, like uh, Walter Cronkite and the, the, the three networks. Again, I'm you know expatriate Canadian who's spent most of his adult life in the United States, so I'm giving American examples. I think it's a little less extreme in Canada, um, although the, the trends are there too. So when I was at a basketball game this week, I was with Steve Pakin, host of The Agenda, and I mentioned that you were coming on the show. He said, first of all, say hello. And he said, well, you should ask him about his, his sister, Susan. I'm not sure which one is smarter. This, this family is a family of geniuses. So I'm curious about your background. You came from Montreal. How did that all come about? Was that just the gift of DNA, or did you have parents that really fostered the sense of curiosity about life? Well, I think it's both. And since, since uh, we weren't adopted, uh, me, nor Susan, nor, nor our, our brother, uh, Rob, who worked for the Canadian government for, for many years as a, uh, a policy uh, analyst and executive. As a scientist, I know that genes certainly matter. They account for about half the variation in just about anything you want to measure. But we also had um, uh, parents, my father, Harry, my mother, Rose. And certainly our, book, our house was filled with uh, books and magazines. The dinner table conversation was engaged and often quite intellectual. There was a encouragement and, and emphasis on um, school and achievement and, and ideas. So it's a, a happy, happy confound in, in our case. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. The decline of violence, I think, has profound implications. It should force us to ask not just why is there war, but also why is there peace? Not just what are we doing wrong, but also what have we been doing right? Because we have been doing something right, and it sure would be good to find out what it is. My guest today is Professor Steven Pinker, the Johnson Family Professor at the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. So you describe yourself growing up in a Jewish neighborhood, English part of Montreal, but also describe yourself as becoming an atheist at age 13. Culturally Jewish all your life, but an atheist. Is that just your scientific background coming through at an early age or being a bit of a radical? Or is it just, where did you come to that conclusion at such a young age that you knew what path you were going to follow? You know, it was never an epiphany or a revelation. It just, the concept of God just never seemed particularly compelling. I think like a lot of people, if you ask me when I was a child, you know, I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what they say. And uh, I hadn't really thought about it too deeply. When I did start to think about it too deeply, it was uh, like the famous uh, quote from the, uh, the mathematician Laplace, I have no need for that hypothesis. And if you're Jewish, it's, it's not a uh, crushing uh, contradiction not to believe in God because Judaism is really more of a belief of, of uh, practice than of belief. If you carry out the Jewish laws, the, the, uh, the traditions observe the Sabbath, light the candles, stay, stay kosher. Um, the attitude is about your actual private beliefs is, is kind of don't ask, don't, don't tell, more or less. Uh, you know, rabbis might disagree with me depending on which, which denomination, but peering into your soul and 
interrogating your core beliefs is not as big a part of Judaism as it, as it is in, say, Catholicism. I love to tell the story of one of my late Harvard colleagues, uh, a fellow Jewish atheist, the great sociologist Dan, Daniel Bell, who said that when he was 13 and preparing for his bar mitzvah, he said to, to uh, his rabbi, Rabbi, I've, I've searched my soul. I've thought about it really deeply. And I have to say, I just don't believe in God. And the rabbi shot back, you think God cares? <laughs> <laughs> and in a New York Times article, because I'm always fascinated about youth and, the, and what you take in from parents and surroundings and, and what path it leads you on, you describe yourself as a 15-year-old anarchist. At the time, you're saying people don't need a police force to keep the peace. Governments caused the very problems that we're supposed to solve. And then I think somewhat afterwards, the, the cops went on strike and there's a lot of carnage and stuff. So how did that feed your mind in terms of making sort of definitive statements and then taking stimulus in? I mean, is that part of where you began this journey of just trying to figure things out for people? The reality is, it's, at least in my case, and I suspect for everyone else, it's never just one incident or one epiphany, but it's uh, an accumulation of uh, understanding. In the case of the Montreal police strike, which was which was striking for anyone who lived through it, that is how quickly we polite Canadians could um, let all hell break loose, looting, rioting, a couple of uh, shootings, uh, all within hours of the police going on strike. So it kind of encapsulates the idea quite nicely. It wasn't until decades later that I developed that line of thought, and that's when I wrote The Better Angels of Our Nature, having plotted graphs showing rates of violence going down over time. The natural question is... Why? How come? What, 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 what was the cause of that effect? And through a lot of evidence, not just this one anecdote, I came to the, the conclusion that government, police, uh, criminal justice system is a large part of it. When you have regions of the world that are in uh, anarchy, such as uh, the American Wild West, regions that never had a, a state like uh, hunter-gatherer societies, when you have remote regions that the government hasn't yet exerted its control over, such as the Scottish Highlands in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, such as the mountainous regions of Southeast Asia, then you get high rates of violence. The mountainous areas of Sicily, if you think back to the, uh, the flashbacks from Godfather Part Two the origin of the Corleone family, uh, where there's the, the code of vendetta and, and blood revenge, that leads to high rates of carnage because uh, each side always thinks that they're justly retaliating for an uh, unprovoked act of aggression against the other. And uh, that leads to uh, endless cycles of violence. Whereas if you have the equivalent of, of referees or umpires, namely courts, police, rule of law, then that uh, that tends to settle things much more quickly. What made you choose psychology? I mean, that's the path you've been on, starting with McGill. What prompted that to just sort of say, this is something that I am passionate about, and not only do I want to study, but as it turns out, one day lead? I was interested in, in human nature and what makes us tick, partly because it drives so many other phenomena, such as politics, your, your, your theory of the optimal uh, form of government is ultimately a reflection of human nature. Your uh, appreciation of the arts depends on, uh, in fact, the arts themselves are products of the human mind. So it seemed to me human nature is at the center of the intellectual universe. And how do you study human nature? Well, there are diff different disciplines that study in different ways. There's anthropology and sociology, the humanities, philosophy. But psychology for me was a kind of sweet spot between raising interesting, profound issues, like what are the roots of violence? How do we know? But it seemed uh, more tractable that you, that is, these are 
profound issues, but you could make headway by uh, studying them in the lab. And so experimental psychology, in particular cognitive psychology, combined the uh, study of deep issues with a tractable means of making progress in answering them. And how did Harvard come about? Because that's... How did, how did I end up at the, uh, at, at the McGill of the United States? That's a great way to pose it. I can't say that it was a particularly rational decision. I think the, uh, the, the, the name brand had something to do with it. Uh, when I visited Cambridge, I just loved the, the, the whole atmosphere, the concentration of universities with MIT, uh, two subway stops away, and Boston University, and Brandeis, and Tufts, and Northeastern. Um, uh, there were tech companies at the time that had pure researchers. So it was just a concentration of ideas. And I, I, I just, I like the atmosphere. Um, Harvard was a name brand. It wasn't particularly strong in my area when I entered. So I, uh, if I could advise my younger self, that would have been strong arguments to make a different choice, but it certainly worked out. Just to give my audience a sense of your accomplishments in the academic area, assistant professor at Harvard and Stanford, then you join MIT as Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences, and then you return to Harvard. I mean, interesting institutions and stuff. Along the way, how did you see yourself develop in terms of narrowing the lane to deciding where you were going to really put a lot of your focus, this gift that you give back to people in terms of what I call accessible uh, knowledge? Well, the, the first part of my career, I did what academics have to do and published exclusively in uh, referee journals and uh, university press books. I wrote two books that were, uh, as they say about the Vegematic, not sold in stores, <laughs> but uh, got the attention of my peers uh, I, I got tenure, I got grants, I had graduate students and postdoctoral fellows, and uh, and continued that, but I broadened to writing for a larger audience, partly under the influence of other scientists who had done so successfully, like Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Dawkins. Uh, I sensed that there was a great interest in the things that I studied. When when someone sitting next to me on a plane would say, what do you do? And I'd say, I, I studied language. they say, oh, that's really interesting. But there wasn't a book out there uh, similar to, say, uh, Dawkins' The Blind Watchmaker, which made the ideas accessible to uh, a wide audience. So I, I felt that there was a um, an appetite for it. I was told by uh, university press editors who had seen my academic writing, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, gee, for a, a, a professor, your writing doesn't suck. Did you ever get pushback from your peers? Because in the academic circle, you know, it's it's the papers you publish, it's the validation by other professors. And now you're out and your books are appearing in bookstores and they're beginning, you know, being reviewed in the New York Times. Did that create any animosity or jealousy? Or is it is the community such that, hey, you know, if you can do it, go for it? Uh, certainly in my, the institution, that I that I worked in, there was nothing but encouragement. First at MIT, then at Harvard. I think my my peers were fine. You know, I don't know what they say behind my back. I don't know how much. And you know, like anyone who who writes books, I do get negative reviews. I get attacks. If I were both cynical and self serving, I'd say, oh, it's because they're jealous. And you know, probably some of it is jealousy. I try not to think that too much because then I would it's just too self-serving. I could brush off legitimate criticism if I just kept saying, oh, it's professional jealousy. But I, it certainly did not hinder my academic career. Uh, I did get a, uh, having been at MIT for a number of years, I got a job offer at Harvard. I was given precisely the warnings that you suspect that um, I might be a victim of the Sagan effect, referring to the fact that Carl Sagan, the great astronomer and science popularizer, he was the 
uh, creator and host of a PBS series called Cosmos, which is one of the most popular public television series of all time. A great show. He, a great show. He appeared regularly on The Tonight Show in the Johnny Carson days. He wrote for Parade Magazine, which was the color supplement to uh, Sunday newspapers. And he never got elected to the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, certainly an injustice because he made scientific contributions such as the what makes the atmosphere of Venus so hot, the early technical analyses of the greenhouse effect and, and other discoveries in astronomy. And it's widely thought, I think justly, that he was denied election to the National Academy because of jealousy or, or resentment. Now, in my case, it was a risk that I uh, willingly took because I didn't have any particular expectations of being elected to the National Academy in the first place. But as it turns out, I was elected to the National Academy, so the Sagan curse seems no longer to apply, or at least it didn't apply to me. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. When we return, I'll take full advantage of this world-renowned thinker and ask Steven Pinker what it will take to teach our children well. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, and a big thank you to RBC for sponsoring Chatter That Matters. Speaking of matters, I have a question for you. You check in on your family, your health, even your car. When was the last time you did a check-in on your finances? Well, RBC Check-In is a virtual experience with no obligation. I got answers to all of my money questions, big and small, and I now have a plan for my future. Book a check-in at rbc.com slash check-in. There are a number of reasons to doubt that the human mind is a blank slate, and some of them just come from common sense. As many people have uh, told me over the years, anyone who's had more than one child knows that kids come into the world with certain temperaments and talents. It doesn't all come from the outside. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Professor Steven Pinker from my hometown in Montreal and a world-renowned thinker when it comes to psychology, linguistics, and so much more. I want to also talk about, because there's a lot of parents that listen to this show, and you, your early work talked about how children learn the words and grammar of their caregivers. Explain that, because on face value, it seems pretty obvious, but you went much deeper than just the fact that they learn how to speak by listening to parents. It's, it's much more than that, right? Well, of course, they can't simply listen and um, memorize, because uh, it would be very upsetting if your child just parroted back exact sentences. They're uh, analyzing the... Uh, grammatical structure of sentences that I mean that sounds like um, you know diagramming sentences but it really is just getting an intuitive feel for the rules that uh, combine words and, and, and bits of words and we know that that is uh, the kids are doing that because of the errors they make when a child says something like um, take a case that I've studied in, in considerable detail when kids say I holded the baby rabbits or I have three toy mouses or I sticked it on the fridge but then it teared they're not parroting back words that they've heard from their parents, but they clearly have assimilated uh, some mental equivalent of the rule of grammar to form the past tense of a verb add uh, the, the suffix ed. They over-apply it to the handful of irregular verbs, or in the case of uh, gooses and mouses and mans and tooths, irregular nouns. But it, what it shows is that they've, they're, they're seeking patterns. Uh, and I've written uh, a couple of books and many articles on how kids do that. What are they listening for? What do they take away from the sentences they hear? Uh, and I've also had to think twice about even the very idea that you, that you mentioned in the, uh, the, the, the premise that they learn language from their caregivers, their parents. 
they do to begin with, but kids are especially attentive to the language of their peers more than of their parents. We see this in uh, accent. That is, if children of immigrants always grow up with the accent of their peers, never of their parents, not even halfway in between. And children of immigrants will pick up the uh, language of the adopted country from the playground, from school, and they'll often force their parents to switch. And that was uh, true of my parents, like many children of immigrants. My father, Harry, and my mother, uh, Rose Roslin, spoke Yiddish as their first language. But they not only acquired English, but they basically pressured their parents to speak to them in English, at least in the case of, of, uh, of uh, my, my mother. That's a very common children of immigrant experience. We also know that when kids are thrown together without a uh, common language, such as, say, deaf children of hearing parents who don't have a, a standardized sign language, they'll often uh, generate a sign language within a couple of generations if they're thrown together at a school for the deaf. And you talk about how language can reveal our inner selves, thoughts, emotions, and social relationships. How, how does that come about? It. Um, I wrote a, a whole book on that called The Stuff of Thought, Language is a Window into Human Nature. Slight turn from the previous books I'd written, which concentrated on uh, on on the structure of words, uh, accent, combinations of words. But this one looked at uh, our thoughts as revealed by our language. And the window uh, reveals different aspects of human nature. They are nouns and verbs and prepositions and um, uh, tense uh, markers. Uh, say something about how we think about space and time and matter and causality and agency. Um, our, our taboo language, our swear words, uncover some of our attitudes towards sexuality and excretion and death and disease and race and uh, ethnic bias. Our politeness and innuendo and euphemism and beating around the bush say something about our social relationships, our friendships, our love affairs, our um, authority or dominance relationships. So in each case, the, since we have language for a reason, namely to communicate information, but also to signal our social relationships, there are aspects of language that can uh, allow us to do a kind of psychology without a psychology lab. That is, by looking at how language works, we can see something about uh, what animates us, what makes us tick, what obsesses us. Is that something that we should be offering the teachers of children, that they understand that better so that they can more personalize the way they inspire and educate and motivate generations? Yeah, I think that the psychology of learning, and for that matter, the psychology of social relationships is uh, a, a, an important component of uh, being a skilled teacher. Certainly in the, in the case of learning to read, knowing how language works is a uh, prerequisite to effective reading instruction, including the sound structure of, of uh, words and sentences. But also, what is the child's concept of number that they bring into the schoolroom and on, on which uh, mastery of arithmetic has to build? What is children's uh, intuitive conception of science, that of, of living things, of force, of, of motion, of matter? Because these folk theories or these intuitions are what we all start from. And sometimes education doesn't consist of writing on a blank slate but of debugging or refining or building on intuitions that we have before we even study things in school. Uh, likewise, for appreciation of probability, uh, of, of uh, history. And on top of that, understanding just the 
social dynamics of kids with each other and, and, and in a classroom uh, has to be helpful. I want to now move to this to your book, The Blank Slate. And you challenge three assumptions. The blank slate suggests our mind begins as a blank canvas painted entirely by our environment, parenting, and culture. The second assumption is that a lot of people feel we're inherently good and the evil motives are not inherent to people, but they come from you know corruption around us. And the third is the ghost in the machine, that the essential part of us is somehow independent of our biology. Our experiences and choices can't be explained by our make up our evolutionary history. Those are three fairly ingrained assumptions. What did you find out with your work that challenged that? And how, in fact, does our mind develop? Certainly not just me, but it's... Your work and others, obviously, yeah. Okay. We'll start with the ghost in the machine. That is the idea that each of us has a uh, body, which is like like a machine, but somehow hovering around that body or in that body or, or linked to it is the, is a uh, immaterial soul, which might part company from the body at, at uh, a death, which gets in, somehow injected into the body at conception or during uh, development. That we have reason to believe is, is uh, a folk intuition, a myth. Actually, all of our conscious experience is a result of physiological activity in the tissues of the brain. Oh, and we know that for you know, many reasons, that every form of thought and emotion has some um, signature in brain activity, that brain activity, that the consciousness can change with physical manipulations of the brain, like drugs, like brain damage, like electrical stimulation, going back to the famous studies from by uh, Wilder Penfield at the Montreal Neurological Institute in the 1930s, send an electrical current into the brain and suddenly people are experiencing their eighth birthday or, uh, or, or uh, other memories or hallucinations. And the fact that, um, sad to say, uh, the uh, when the activity of the brain ceases, the uh, person goes out of existence. That is, you the you can't have a séance with uh, Aunt Hilda telling you where she hid the jewelry um, and that you can then verify. So those are the, the the facts that lead us to believe that we are are our brains. So that's 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 why I think the ghost in the machine is not a viable belief. The uh, blank slate, uh, I think, is refuted by. First of all, just the realization that nothing comes from nothing, that slates don't do anything. The fact that we can learn language and assimilate uh, and acquire knowledge and interact with each other suggests that there's got to be some kind of machinery there just to do the learning, even though learning, of course, is vitally important. But learning doesn't happen in a vacuum. There have got to be learning circuits that do the learning. Uh, the fact that there are cross-cultural universals, patterns found in all human societies, the fact that babies from the youngest age, we uh, we can test them, have an uh, expectation of certain things in the environment like objects and uh, forces, and that variation between individuals, that what makes one person uh, bolder or shyer or more conscientious or smarter or less smart correlates with variation in their genes. That is, identical twins are more similar than fraternal twins, for example. And now we we're starting to see actual signs of that in the, uh, the, the genome. The noble savage, the idea that we are born um, innocent and, are, and all destructive urges come from social programming is belied by the universal, universality of violence that all societies um, have rape and murder. All societies also condemn rape and murder. Societies without modern media or government, such as um, pre-state um, 
foraging societies often have high rates of violence. The fact that the most violent age stage in, in life is not adolescence, but uh, but but toddlerhood. Two-year-olds are the most violent. Uh, they, they can't do much damage because we don't give them guns. But and, and this is actually a, a finding of uh, Richard Tremblay at the University of Montreal, among others. So uh, all of those suggest that the we, we aren't born innocent either. That's what I'm, part of what is written on the slate before we come out is our, our certain urges for violence, although also the uh, mental faculties that allow us to reduce violence, like empathy and self-control, which are constantly fighting out a battle in, 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 uh, in the skull. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Despite what you read on the news, humanity has been uh, getting better off. Few of us die of disease and starvation. Few of us are illiterate. Uh, few of us are victims of violent crimes. Few of us die in wars. Few of us live under dictatorships. My guest is Professor Pinker, who Time Magazine is named to their 100 most influential people in the world five times. And I want to talk about your latest book, Rationality, what it is, why it seems scarce and why it matters. Because again, you're taking a subject that we use the word, you're just being irrational all the time, but you've really taken it apart and once again presenting to the world that it's not an easy word to dismiss. It is, in fact, a current that runs through us. So tell us a little bit about the book and what you're hoping people will walk away with when they read it. The main goal that I had was... uh to explain what I thought of as the main tools of, of rationality that we are not uh, necessarily born with, probability, theory, logic, statistical decision-making, rational choice, causation and correlation that are the um, in the toolkit of a social scientist, but that are useful to everyone in making health decisions, in making financial decisions, in preferring some policies over others. In contrast to many of the biases and fallacies that uh, humans are prone to that have been discovered in um, by cognitive psychologists such as Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. So I wanted to explain both the quirks of human reasoning and the benchmarks of better reasoning that uh, against which we can compare human reasoning. But as soon as I told people I was writing a book on rationality, and even prior to that when I said I was teaching a course on rationality, the first question I would get is, okay, maybe you can explain why humanity is losing its mind. Uh, why do we see so much flagrant irrationality around us, like conspiracy theories and quack cures and, and paranormal woo-woo? What's the deal there? So I combined these topics, or three really, it's how to reason, how humans, how we should reason, how we do reason, and uh, why we often reason so uh, bizarrely in in uh, one book. And I, I did not come to the, uh, an easy conclusion, which is humans are just irrational. We uh, evolved to run away from, uh, from 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 lions and tigers and bears, and so we are just a bag of reflexes. That can't explain how we achieved. Uh, stupendous feats of rationality like vaccines, like smartphones, like uh, DNA and the Big Bang. Nor does it going to explain how uh, each of us in navigating our day-to-day lives, holding a job, paying the rent, getting our kids uh, clothed and fed and off to school on time, that doesn't happen without a lot of uh, everyday rationality. And that's not just a feature of modern school societies, but hunter-gatherers are 
um, tremendously rational when it comes to their survival, such as figuring out how to stalk and trap and outsmart uh, animals or to derive medicines and poisons from plants. So we're all, we all can be rational. The question then is, why are we sometimes so irrational? Applying it back to education, because I want to take advantage in the last bit of this interview to talk to you about the way we're teaching our children. So much of what you've uncovered, both in language, as you talk about, you know, why we're often irrational, a lot of this, should, do you not think, belongs even at the elementary school level, where we're preparing our kids for what is next, which is a very different world where jobs will be competed for in the cloud, where machines are going to get faster, better, and smarter, that a lot of the stuff you talk about, critical thinking, probability, correlation, is that not essential skills that, that have to go not necessarily just at your level or at a university level, but should be just really part of the curriculum all the way through? I think it should. I think there should certainly be a, a um, introduction to probability in, in, a, in an age-appropriate manner as soon as kids can handle it. Since there are only so many hours in a day, he can't just fall for the fallacy, oh, kids, it's great if kids knew this, let's pile that onto the curriculum because there are only so many things. Because there are also people who say, well, music is, is essential and um, physical activity is essential and you know, literacy is essential, but they also need to understand poetry. And so kids should know everything, but we've got to make some choices uh, as to what deserves priority. And I would argue that probability deserves priority. What would we remove from the curriculum to make room for it? Uh, I've, I was surprised to learn that they still teach trigonometry in high school. I have nothing against trigonometry. I love trigonometry, but given a certain number of minutes available for math instruction, probability is way more important than, than trigonometry. But probability as part of a curriculum that emphasizes critical thinking more generally, how to evaluate arguments, how not to argue from an anecdote or two, but to appeal to evidence how not to confuse correlation with causation. All of those should be eventually second nature and therefore part of the curriculum early on. But it can't just be, in terms of making our culture more rational, it can't just be teach it in school, as important as that is. Because the problem with schooling is depressing fact, depressing at least for a, a, a college professor. Uh, students tend to forget the material as soon as the ink is dry on the exam. And we, we shouldn't put too much faith in how much we can convey in school, because together with what you learn in school, there's also just the, the norms of debate and conversation and argumentation in, on uh, TV debates and op-ed pages, in, in barroom arguments. And it's got to be part of the uh, our, just our, our, our general uh, culture and not just a subject taught in school. That's, of course, much harder because you can't legislate culture the way you can implement a school curriculum. You say on page 312 that many a campus is devolved into a suffocating left-wing monoculture. So it sounds like we are still, we are investing some of that precious time that we're teaching, maybe less about making rational decisions and in this case, maybe creating a one-sided culture. I think it is a problem that has to be fixed, and this could be the topic of a whole other conversation, and there's been you know, massive uh, discussion over the imposition of politically correct or, or, or woke views, not just in, in schools, but in uh, media, nonprofits, and government, and uh, business, and even the military, uh, how uh, opinion has been criminalized, that if you depart from certain orthodoxies about race and, and gender, you can be, as we say, uh, canceled. 
So I don't want the rest of the conversation to get sucked into that vortex. I've had those conversations as well. But yes, it is a real issue. I think it's uh, it can do damage. It has done damage. And uh, we ought to recommit ourselves to the idea that no one is infallible. No one is omniscient. And the only way that we can know anything about anything is to err. Uh, competing hypotheses and let them be evaluated. So we both grew up in Montreal and, you know, I've spent my time in Canada and the United States. Do you see democracy as something we should be, feel optimistic about as an institution that can survive given how we think irrationally, how we, our media is sort of choosing sides? Is it an institution that can continue to sort of defend this idea of free press? you know, freedom to protest. Can that continue? Democracy has been in, in something of a recession over the last um, 10, 10 years or so, that there's been uh, the, the overall curve of proportion of world governments that are democracies hasn't uh, set the clock back to the 1970s when they were all, the world only had 32 democracies. But it has gone in the wrong direction. I do think that there are, well, democracy can always be smothered by military coups, by violent gangs. What I can say is that it's got some built-in advantages. As Winston Winston Churchill said, it's the worst form of government except for all the others. And that's because, well, all the others involve empowering some um, autocrat or oligarchy, which if they arrogate absolute power to themselves, nothing is going to stop them from implementing the harebrained uh, schemes on on society. They don't have the feedback mechanism of how well people actually thrive under their governments. And so they're almost inevitably bound to do stupid and repressive things, which is why uh, uh, immigrants tend to go from autocracies to democracies whenever the democracies will let them in. They really are better places to live. Now, Steve, I always end my show with my three takeaways. And, and the first one, I just love what you say is, you know, opinions are being criminalized and just how important it is that the individuals, I think, push back on it. Second thing was just, it was a, it was almost a throwaway, but just how much it makes sense in terms of teaching children even probability so that they can make more intelligent decisions. But the last thing that I really lifted my spirits today, and I, and I love your writing and I love your sense of humor and everything else you put into it. It's just your belief in democracy, and sometimes I think we forget how good we have it here. And as you said, how many people would leave autocratic regions of the world to come here? And I think that that sense of always putting your remarks out with both playfulness, but also science and math, and combining those two is what I think makes you, as Time says, one of our most influential thinkers in the world. So I really appreciate you joining me in Chatter That Matters. Thank you for having me. Joining me now is Alan DePonce. He's the Chief Marketing Officer of RBC. I have a question for you that when I talk to Professor Pinker and he talks about, you know, the news and this storm of negativity, sometimes growing cynicism, is that a hard territory for a brand to play in? Because you know that no matter what you do, no matter how positive your intention, there's always going to be people on the sidelines willing to throw social media slingshots? I think the most important thing that we try to do is really understand our purpose as an organization, make sure we have the culture that we need internally with all our staff and employees, 
and have conviction of kind of, you know, our overall plan of delivering against that purpose and what are the right programs and strategies we're going to use to, to bring it to life. But we're not perfect. You know, sometimes when we do things, we overlook specific situations or uh, we get feedback. The great thing about social media is uh, you get lots of feedback. And sometimes the downside of social media is you get a lot of feedback that maybe you don't want to hear. But I think you you need to be open to listening and constantly thinking about, are you on the right track and learning to grow over time? How do you keep your the younger generation inspired and motivated because they might read something or their parents might read something and, and bring it to the dinner table where they feel they have to defend? How, how do you let them know that this is just the reality of the world today and it's okay to have opposing points of view? I think it starts with your culture. I think it starts with... Uh, communication of really helping under, everybody understand what is our overall purpose as an organization? What is our overall strategy? What are those programs we're going to lean into? I think we also have to be transparent. And I think the wonderful thing about RBC is we have a culture where people are not afraid to speak up and ask questions and uh, and challenge things, which I think is good. It helps us see different lenses. And as you get those different lenses, you actually make better outcomes and you make better decisions. So I think you're, if you think of your employees as that first kind of feedback mechanism, you'll probably learn a lot more before you go to market. You don't probably want to learn if you put something in market and it's kind of kind of just off the market. And I'm curious as a leader nowadays, where we are sometimes walking on eggshells because we're dealing with a lot of current of change. You know, we're dealing with gender equality, we're dealing with uh, diversity, we're dealing with how an organization must stand beyond profit. Is it hard to give the individual the kind of feedback that they deserve? Has empathy, but it's also very, very candid. You know, I think the guiding principle that I that I start with is you can't grow as an individual unless you get feedback. Like if you're a professional athlete. And you don't have a coach telling you, like, just take a tennis player and, and, you know, you're working on your forehand. The great part about having a coach is they tell you what you're doing well and what areas that you can improve on. And they do it because they care about you and they want you to succeed. So if you take that same guiding principle, you as a leader should want to give candid feedback to your employee, as well as receive candid feedback from them to you so that you can grow. And it's just normal to get both positive feedback and maybe feedback that's not so good. But it starts with the concept of caring. If someone's giving me feedback and I know they care about me, then I'm more apt to listen to it. I think the most important thing as a leader is to create an environment and a muscle. You know, feedback is a good thing. That's how we grow. That's how we get better. I'll end this by just saying, and I and I mean this in the bottom of my heart, the people I've worked with that work for you absolutely love the organization, love the fact that they feel empowered. Uh, they're allowed to make mistakes and take risks. And I think that's testament to you, your culture. I thank you for letting me be part of that as well and uh, continued success is the, uh, in your uh, marketing role. I appreciate it. Thank you. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.